this episode of Doing Disney, we travel to the magical land of Narnia as we talk about 2005's The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Theme song guy. On this podcast, we let it go because Hakuna Matata and the bare necessities will always be our guide to infinity and beyond. All it takes is faith, trust and a little bit of pixie dust. We know that life is better under the sea because on this podcast, we do Disney. Hi there. I'm your hostess with the mostest, Kelly Meehan, and welcome to Doing Disney. I've brought an extra special guest today to talk about a childhood favourite. I've been extremely keen to rewatch this one. He's a Disney live action expert. It's Cameron Holtzman. Cameron, thank you for joining me today. Hi. Yeah. Um, I, I would say this is a childhood favourite, but this is an always favourite. This is still one of my favourite movies, despite me being a full adult at this point. Just a movie I absolutely adore. I did also like when I was a kid, though, so. Start at the beginning. The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, released in 2005, directed by Andrew Adamson, starring Liam Neeson as Eslan and Tilda Swinton as Jadis, the White Witch. We focus on the Pevensey children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, evacuated from London during World War II and sent to live in the countryside in the manner of Professor Kirk. While exploring the house during a game of hide-and-seek, Younger sibling Lucy finds a wardrobe to hide in. Little does she know this is the gateway to the magical land of Narnia. Narnia is currently presided over by Jadis, the White Witch, who has made an eternal winter. However, there is a prophecy that one day four children will come to Narnia to take back the throne. As all four siblings travel through the wardrobe into the woods of Narnia, they are betrayed by younger brother Edmund to the White Witch. The three remaining siblings make way for Aslan's camp, where they meet the titular lion. The White Witch brings Edmund to the camp in a secret exchange. She will return Edmund if Aslan will sacrifice himself. War is soon declared. Aslan is resurrected and the White Witch is defeated. The children take their place on the throne of Narnia, where they rule over the kingdom until adulthood. When, however, they stumble back into the woods through the wardrobe, when no time has passed. Tale as old as time. Today we're talking about the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Cameron, how'd you first come to the film? Yeah, so I was I was five years old when this movie came out because uh, I am a very young individual. Um, but no, I uh, when I was a kid, uh, my family and I, when my parents would like read to me and my brother before we went to bed, we would read the Narnia books. Like I had been through all seven of them before this movie had come out i have like i have the version of the book where it's just all seven in one massive tome and it's really really inconvenient because i tried to reread the books in high school and throwing a five pound book that takes up half of the space in your backpack into your bag is not a conducive experience to uh being in high school but no yeah i loved the books uh when i was a kid and then the movie came out and i saw the first movie and i don't really remember it because again like i was five i don't remember like the first time i saw it i distinctly remember seeing the second one in the theater with my father because we i distinctly remember we went uh months after it had come out to like the cheap theater in our area that plays <laughs> movies months after their initial release yeah. um but still great uh and then there's a third one that we don't need to talk about mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't talk about the dawn shredder no 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 <laughs> Uh, I can't remember if I went to the movies for this one or just rented it in 2005, but I remember all the promo for it, like when you went to the cinema and they had the big cutouts and things like that, because this is peak Harry Potter time, really. 
And I mean that in the sense that we've just had two or three. Oh, when was Prisoner of Azkaban? 2005. Prisoner of Azkaban was the year before this. Yeah. yeah. So we've had three Harry Potter films. We want the next big fantasy children's fan franchise to kick off. So there was a lot of hype, a lot of budget, but I think it was well received at the time from what I remember. I remember really enjoying it. My friends definitely really enjoyed it. But it is a long movie. I remember even feeling like it was long as a teenager. Oh, yeah, it's like like two and a half hours long. When I looked at Disney Plus the other night, it said two and a half hours. I'm like, okay, buckle down. But it actually went really quite quickly. And usually anything over two hours nowadays, I'm like old woman at this point. I'm like, oh, no, can't do it. Can't do it in one sitting even. But it flew by. But the last 20 minutes in Disney Plus are credits, which I did not know. Oh, <laughs> it was like that's 17 like, minutes The runtime of this movie is very long. <laughs> but for a movie of this size made in the year 2005, the number of people in the credits is like, it's, it's less intimidating than it seems. Still a long movie, though. But um, this is one I've maybe watched only once or twice in the year that followed it. So it's been a good chunk of time since I've seen it. So I was really happy to revisit it. I just started reading the books. So the books is something that's been on my to-do list for so long time. So I just started it two days ago. I picked up a copy from school and I'm about a little over halfway through it and I'm loving it. So I'm really keen to continue with the franchise, which is great. Which book did you like start with? No. So when I went to the shelf to try and find number one and it said The Magician's Nephew, I was a little confused. Yeah, cause, well, because there, there's the order they were published mm-hmm. and then there's the order in which they take place. And those are two very different orders because the first yes. book chronologically was the sixth book released, if I'm not mistaken. It uh, sounds so, like yeah, it. yeah. It is prequels done well, if that makes sense. Like, it's a oh, good, yeah. it is but a good I, story. Magician's Nephew was a book that, as a child, I found very uninteresting. <laughs> like, as a kid, I was like, this is boring. Where's the talking lions? Where's the <laughs> sentient wolves? Where's the dragons? All that. And then I, I went through them again as I was graduating high school, first year of university. And I actually, instead of reading them, I found there are, like, radio play versions of them. Uh, that I found uh, on like Apple Music and listening to them I was like the magician's nephew is great and is far superior to at least two of the other books in this series it's my favorite part because you'll see so Cameron what's your favorite scene from the film oh it's 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 such a hard because like I love I love this whole film. When you sent me the list of like things to that we're gonna talk about on this, I was like, yeah. wonderful. I have to pick things. I think I think it's hard to necessarily maybe call this my favorite, but I think the best scene in this movie to me is the the killing of Aslan sequence. Let's I think it. it it is remarkably dark for what is a children's Disney movie made in the early 2000s. It is a full, like, ritualistic sacrifice. You see them torture Aslan. You see them, like, shave him. Uh, Tilda Swinton is legitimately terrifying in that scene. And I love her performance in that movie. But just the way it's done, the lighting, the score... Uh, the effects of this movie still hold up to this day. And then I think the biggest thing is like 
by having Susan and Lucy like watching it happen, you are truly seeing this scene through the eyes of a child. You are seeing it through the eyes of the most innocent people in this world that are very new to this. And the one like core thing they have in this is like, Aslan is going to take care of us. Aslan is going to protect us. And then you watch them experience his murder. And it's in, like incredibly well done. As I said, like the score, fantastic. The lighting in the scene, amazing. Just all around, like incredibly dark scene. And I, it's, it captivates me every time I see it. Oh, absolutely. This is definitely one of the standouts from the film. I've got a, a little bit of this in my notes when we talk about how evil is the villain, but I'm so happy to touch on it here because it's things like the shaving scene. Like, I was like, that is really rough to see. And you're seeing this. They, they, the shots is what gets me. You get the close-up on his mouth when he's being bound, and then there's the shot of on the stone table and it's it's shooting down, so you're getting yeah. that aerial view of Tilda Swinton standing there on top of the line great and we don't like they don't know and we did if you're watching for the first time and haven't read the book you don't know that Aslan's coming back that could be incredibly scarring right oh, there yes. like this it, could be Mufasa all over again <laughs> it is it is a scene that like as a small child is probably like if had I not read the books beforehand I would have lost my mind <laughs> Because, like, yeah, it's such an intense scene, but it, like, it does exactly what it needs to. It is exactly how the book describes it almost perfectly. Just a brilliant sequence. When I think of the film, the first scene that pops into my head is when Lucy walks through the wardrobe into Narnia and we meet Mr. Tumnus. Mr. Tumnus is hands down one of my, that one was of my the memorable other parts of the scene film. I thought about potentially. Brilliant. <laughs> So, as I said, I was very curious, hadn't read the books. So when I was able to have a little bit of free time, I've read through it because I'm always interested in book-to-movie adaptations. Like, what do you leave out? How is it actually written? What are the actors bringing that isn't there? And there's a lot to Mr. Tumnus that James McAvoy brings, which I really like. So what I didn't know, though, is a lot of this is quite verbatim from what the from what is in the oh, book. is yeah. exactly what they say in the script, which is great. And I guess because... It's a it's a period piece. It's set straight in 1940s London bombings. Like you're you're writing it, so if that's a little bit of the area where the book's from, you don't need to adapt the language that much. Like it, it holds up. It is thematic of the book. So I like how they're really able to capture what it would be like from a child's imagination of like playing in your room to then stumbling upon this magical land. And it's just really every child's dream. The whole plot of the movie really is that you are the destined one to be a ruler of this magical kingdom. So when she goes through and it just turns, I like how they seen from the coats to a little bit of the tree branch to the snow, to the stumbling out. It's not just um, a burst through. It's it's quite a slow movement where you're seeing the, the progress through it. And then we get the lamppost very important and then of course we see Mr Tumnus did not know James McAvoy was going to be such a big deal back in 2005 oh, watching this like what a surprise like, like for all the roles he's done since like 
this is still my favorite performance of his. Like, yeah. I think he's absolutely perfect in this role. Just the, like, the same way that Lucy has this childlike wonder and whimsy for being in Narnia when she first gets there, Mr. Tumnus has almost that same thing for being like, that is a human person. We mm-hmm. don't have those here. And it's like yeah. the, the way they the way they talk. Uh, it's like, where are you from? It's like, well, I came through the wardrobe in the spare room. And he's like, well, Lucy, from the city of wardrobe <laughs> in, the, in the great land of spare room. I'm like, I love this. I love this. And when I was reading the book, even though those are the words from it, I'm reading it in the voice of James McAvoy. I'm reading it in the way that he's inflected and articulated those words, which is great. But what you don't get from the book is the when you're reading the book you read it as i've read it very flat like these are flat words of course you meet the spawn and of course he means you no harm because why wouldn't you just obviously stumble into a magical land and meet a nice person straight away but james mcavoy because he's on screen you get the urgency when lucy doesn't want to come to tea for his house and you get the little flicks of panic and you get just how much he's having to convince her like and as an adult i see it much more now that he's oh, his, his <laughs> delivery of the line i'm kidnapping you oh is, it's because like he like he is sitting there crying over what mm-hmm. he's doing because like tumnus is very much a character who like he is acting out of fear of the white witch but he fully believes in Aslan, fully believes in the prophecy of, of uh, the Pevensies coming. And he knows what he's doing is wrong. And, like, he eventually, like, gets her out and saves her and everything. But just that line where he is breaking down and says, I'm, like, and she's like, what are you doing? Like, why are you okay? What's happening? And he just goes, I'm kidnapping you. Every time I see that line, my heart sinks because it's it's just such a simple line that fully lays bare what is happening in the moment and raises the stakes exponentially from we have a young girl exploring a magical land to she is in danger from the one person that she has met is like betraying her. But you feel his uh, his regret for what he's doing this whole time. Like, it's it's so good. <laughs> it's not what I've done. It's what I'm doing. And yeah. that's like the dun-dun-dun. Like, that puts you in, oh, my goodness. Yeah. And even the scene of um, him playing the flute and the fire oh. dancing, it's beautiful and it's magical. And James McAvoy is just, like, emoting so well while he's playing the flute. And on your first watch, I think you're like, oh, wow, this is magic. This is like I'm getting Peter Pan. I'm getting all those fantasy tropes. It it becomes a very sinister song on rewatches where you know what's happening. And I think that's what's incredible about that song and just the score as a whole from this movie. What are some of your other favorite scenes? Give me one more. I mean, like, I love the whole movie. It's so hard. Uh, The first meeting between Edmund and the White Witch, I think, is oh yeah, uh, an amazing scene. So, like, when I was in high school, in my senior year, our final play for drama was we did The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It was not good, because we did a one-act version that cut so much, it's not even funny. But uh, I, I ended up playing Edmund, and, like, doing that scene 
our script also like rips stuff straight from the book and so it's almost the same and just like that whole dialogue between the two where it's like they both have seemingly very similar experiences in a way when they first go the difference is like lucy is betrayed by someone who is legitimately good whereas edmund is treated well and let go by the greatest evil in this world <laughs> and i think it's a really really interesting cinematic parallel between the two lucy meets the nicest being ever he treats her very well and then betrays her and then edmund meets pure evil is almost run over by her the first time we see her it's it's again one of those things where as a kid you can sit there and be like wow like she's magic she's making him food like she's giving whatever he wants but as an adult like swinton is horrifying like horrifying oh, yeah. in this scene because you can tell that she is like fully manipulating, manipulating. a child mm-hmm. and just like being extremely creepy like there are moments of her like borderline seducing him in a way where it's like i am the queen and you can be the king and it's like i mean to be fair when tilda swinton is offering you the chance to be her king you take it (laughs) uh, but no uh it's just like i think it's super super interesting and it's the way it devolves where swinton is like well i have gotten everything you can give to me right now which is the information you have because your siblings aren't here and so he's like can i have more food can i have more drink she's like when you bring them to me you can you can have all you want it's she's so perfectly manipulative and edmund has absolutely no clue what is happening to him because you're in the middle of world war ii and you can't have sugar because they're rationing sugar and this one is like here is all the candy you want Mm -hmm. you can have more all you have to do and like seemingly is nice to him and goes yeah if you bring your siblings to me all four of you could have whatever you need which in this world where they are like not particularly happy living where they're living sounds like the greatest offer they could ever be given when I've been going back and rewatching films, I'm really finding the difference of when I've watched them young and when I've watched them older because it's which character I'm relating to. So when this film first comes out, I am Pevensey age kids. So I'm seeing everything from their perspective. But now I really connect to any adult character in any Disney movie that I'm watching. So when I'm seeing, as you said, like she's getting, the, she's drawing the information out and when he gives a bit and her face cracks, like all those little subtleties or when He's, he's giving her just a little bit of sass and she gets a little exasperated and snaps and then draws it back. I love those moments. So this scene is so good. And oh, Turkish Delight, like I will forever associate this movie with Turkish Delight, I think. So I, I, had the, I had the thing when I was a kid where like reading the book, seeing the movie, I was like, Turkish Delight. It's sounds incredible. And I, I, the first time I was like, this is legit. It's legitimately awful. In my opinion. Like, I think Turkish Delight is the most underwhelming food I've ever eaten. Well, because like, like, I am led to believe that this is a food worth betraying Magical. your family. It's ambrosia right here. I like, like, 
this is a food that this child deems worthy of selling his entire family to functionally mm-hmm. the devil. And it's not great. That was the biggest change I noticed in the book is the motivations with Edmund. So I love that in the movie they start with the bombing scene and that you see him run back in the house and it's Peter, why are you so selfish? And you're getting those little jabs in early because in the book it was saying it describes Turkish delight. When you take a bite, this is magic Turkish delight. Whoever eats it is totally consumed by it and wants nothing but more. So that's trying to push why Edmund's turning. Whereas in the film, it's more that he's um, feeling belittled by his siblings a bit. Yeah, Edmund, Edmund, with it taking place in the war, like Edmund has gone for a while at least without his actual father in his mm-hmm. life, and his older brother, as we see through, like Bye. even in that opening scene, he says, "Like you think you're dad, but mm-hmm. you're not," and is sick and tired of being just belittled and babied by Peter specifically. And so when he has this chance where he's offered, you can be the king. And she even says, and they're like, she's like, bring your family. And he's like, well, why can't it just be me? And she goes, yeah, they're nothing special. Servants doesn't like, Mm. and it's like, oh, that's, it's so perfectly done. Or it's Edmund is, you fully understand every decision Edmund is making, even though it is fundamentally wrong and bad. But he doesn't come off as being just the sniveling, evil little shit that uh, a certain character in the third movie does. Uh, (laughs) All my homies hate used to scrub. Uh, (laughs) You ain't never had a friend like me. Well, we're getting deep into characters. Cameron, who's your favorite character from the film? Again, this is so impossible. Uh, Because there's like five I could pick easily. I'll kick off then. I thought it was going to be Mr. Tumnus easy, but I'm very glad we've already been able to talk about it a lot. So I'm changing it up. Hands down, by far my favourite characters, they're a package deal, are the beavers. I love the beavers in this film. And you just can't pick one or the other. It's got to be both. And they are just so lovable. Dawn French is just a voice I can pick out in an instant. And then you've got Ray Winston as well as Mr. Beaver, and they're just fabulous. And we first meet Mr. Beaver because he's a friend of Mr. Thomas and he's looking for the children. And then we get introduced to Mrs. Beaver and I I just love their banter. It's super cliche. It's a bit cheesy. But growing up in Australia, watching a lot of British comedies, having a lot of British family and friends, it just checks out about like the husband making the jabs at the wife cooking, even if they're in mortal danger. But then when they go meet Aslan and she's like tidying herself, you look lovely, dear. Like having those sincere moments of building her up. I just found it all, those British sensibilities really checked out to me. And then we also get um, Mr. Beaver being super heroic when he arcs up against the wolf. Uh, but he's also got that line of um, when he sees his friend that's frozen, here's my best mate. Like just having those war allegories in there. I just, we get full rounded characters from the beavers yes they're there for the comic relief which is different from the books which i didn't find out in the books they're just like an older gentle couple but here they've really made it a bit of back and forth between the two which i appreciate and it brings something to the film it brings a bit of levity in those moments especially after the mr thomas scene yeah no uh the beavers i i think like they they are there to be the comic relief characters in this movie because like 
as much as it's like very fantastical and like whimsical in certain ways, it's a very serious and dark movie. The whole plot hinges on like a war for the fate of an entire land between the forces of good and evil. And the center is these children who are being forced to do this. But you you have the beavers. I think my one of my favorite things, and it's not even a line spoken by Mr. Beaver, but it's a line spoken about him that relates to him, is when Aslan is talking to Peter, and he's like, I believe Beaver said something about you turning <laughs> him into a hat. And I'm like... And I'm like, hey, when that original line, when because Peter earlier on threatens him and says, it's like, if he keeps on talking, I'm going to turn him into a big fluffy hat. And then just it coming back and being like, of course, the thing Mr. Beaver is going to tell Aslan, it's like, yeah, Peter threatened to turn me into a hat. Um, but then also like when they're getting ready to flee the beaver's home and uh, and Mrs. Beaver is packing and Mr. Beaver is just, do you really need more jam? We, <laughs> yes. Like, <laughs> she just keeps packing jams. Um, that's like that's what a British mum would do. Like pack up the kitchen. We need food. Let's go and just be yeah, in that panic like, state. Uh, uh, you guys are grumpier than Beaver on Bath Day. I think is one of the lines. <laughs> he's like, "Yep, worst day of the year." <laughs> it's like it's so. I I wouldn't necessarily call them my favorite, but they're they are very necessary because you need someone to lighten the mood and they are the characters that function within that role so then who are you going to pick as your favorite (sighs) well you didn't knock anyone off (laughs) i'm so sorry um so yeah i i thought about picking tumnus but we already got most of the details about him i i think i have to go with lucy i think i think i have to for me, it, it the real debate was between. I also I I thought about picking the White Witch, but I know we'll get more to talking about just the villain. So the pick really came down to, uh, to Lucy or Edmund, because mm-hmm. I think they are the two best written characters in the movie, and just two of my favorite characters in all of fiction. Um, but I think Lucy being like sort of our eyes into this world for the most part really makes the movie what it is and makes that character as great as she is. Cause like, regardless of whether you're a child or not, like she brings the same sense of like wonder and awe that any person would have when they enter this world. And like, She's also super mature for her age, which I really oh, like yeah. in certain things where uh, when she first meets Mr. Tumnus, he's just like, you're a very small girl. And it's just like, well, of course I'm a girl and I'm tallest in my class, actually. <laughs> she's, like, like, she's like, like, she's got just like the little bit of like clever snark to her in a way uh, where he's like, are you a beardless dwarf? And she's like, no, <laughs> no, I'm not a beardless dwarf. Um, what a, like a quote I love is, uh, are you a daughter of Eve? And she's like, well, my mother's name is Helen. Uh, That's so great. <laughs> and, it's like, and it's like, yeah, because you have this, like you have Tumnus as this character who is speaking in this cryptic, I'll, I'll say cryptic in air quotes, because like, it's not actually that cryptic, but when you're, 
I think she's supposed to be seven or eight, I think. You haven't come like across that. that kind of language before. Um, yeah. Yeah. You're not, and like living in the 1940s, you're not going to come across like this old, old mm -hmm. English terms for these things and all of this. And so she's responding to them the way a person of that age would. Straightforwardly. Like, like, yeah. <laughs> the way that her as a character, she is the character who I think simultaneously like grows the most, but also stays the same in a way. Cause yeah. like, she goes from being like this tiny little innocent child to like seeing all these things, but she never loses that wonder about Narnia. She never loses that sense of joy. When she and Mr. Tumnus are reunited, she fully just like embraces him, forgives him in a absolutely beautiful moment. And just, yeah, like her reactions to the things that are happening around her because like when you get more into the second half of the movie peter becomes like the agent of action amongst yes. the pevensies because you're getting to the war and that's what he's doing and lucy doesn't have like a ton to be doing there but lucy is still doing all the stuff with aslan like she is the one who we see as much as students is also there Lucy is the one who we really see reacting to Aslan's death. We see the pain that she feels seeing that and like the horror of her once again, like I met the most magical good being in the universe. He knows my name. He cares about me. And then witnessing him being brutally executed and then the the whole sequence with them thinking they're being chased by the white witch and then just like her pure joy of like it is father christmas i told oh, you yes. and she's just like i told you he was real <laughs> like it's just, it's just like there's so many great moments cuz i think what makes narnia i think i'm going to i'm going to say controversially what I think makes me like Narnia more than stuff like Harry Potter is that we, especially the first two books and the and the first movie, we are seeing the reactions of characters who have lived completely normal lives get all of a sudden thrust into these world into this world where like in Harry Potter. As much as you have, like, sure, Harry is growing up in the human world, like, his parents were both murdered, he has, like, this magical scar, and he's also the only character that you have in that situation, and also he adjusts remarkably fast, like, he <laughs> stops questioning things immediately, <laughs> but, like, always the Pevensies and Lucy especially are, like, filled with wonder at the things they're seeing just enjoying the experience and being happy for it. And this was one of the first movies I saw that has like a post credit scene uh, or like a mid credit scene. Cause this movie has one of those and the mid credit scene with Lucy, I think perfectly ends the film and sets up where it's going. Cause they've grown up in Narnia. They've been there for years and they come back. And then the post credit scene is her like the same night that they get back going to the wardrobe again. And when she sees Narnia is not there, she's like, okay. She accepts that now is not the time to return. 
but she knows she still believes in it. She still knows that what happened was real. And I think just, yeah. It's a lot to go through for such a small girl. Like she handles it so well. I don't have any siblings, but a lot of the best, what I would say sibling and family moments sort of stem from what Lucy's doing in the film. So it's her interactions with Susan um, when they're like splashing war each other, you know, before you became boring. Or I love how um, oh, how caring Peter is as, as an older brother because he is trying to step into that father figure role and look after the rest. And then you have that um, push and pull with Edmund when they go through the wardrobe and he lies about not going through, but yeah. she believes him. And they have that scene about uh, with the professor, which sibling usually tells the truth, which sibling usually lies, things like that. So a lot of that is stemming from what Lucy's doing. So, uh, yeah, as you said, this, you've seen the, the film through the eyes and they have those beautiful shots where they just, like, pan straight on the face and the look of awe and wonder. It's It absolutely draws you into the film. It's just... I don't know how much more I can say on it. It's a great character. You just absolutely yeah, summed no, up what makes Lucy so like, good. And especially, it's also hard for me because I'm like, yeah, I have several books full of context of this character. Yes. <laughs> and I'm trying to keep it to just this movie. <laughs> Listen well, all of you. So, Karen, what's the what's the best quote from the film? This fits with uh, with where I kind of left off talking about Lucy my favorite i will say there were a lot of great quotes to choose from but also most of my favorite quotes from the narnia series as a whole are not from this book slash movie uh i think there are a lot of great ones that come later but the one i'm going with is the very last line of the film in the post credit scene in the mid credit scene which is the dialogue between professor kirk and lucy where she asks, will we ever go back? And his response is, I expect so, but it will probably happen when you're not looking. All the same, it is best to keep your eyes open. To me, that line perfectly caps off the film. It perfectly sets up where we're going, but it's also just like this lovely message of like, the magic isn't gone. It's just not the time for it right now. Narnia... All that happened to you, it still matters, and your adventure is not over. It's just, it will happen when it happens, and until, and keep an eye out for it. But until that point, like, just let your life happen. Like, it's, because it's the idea of, they they can't stay in Narnia forever. You can't just abandon the world you live in and go to Narnia because, like, you have family back in the real world and all of this. But it's the same thing of, like, that will always be a part of you. Mm -hmm. And it will continue to be a major thing in your life. But your life here matters, too. And that especially becomes, again, like, a bigger theme as you go through the books. Because they make, like, at the end of Prince Caspian, they make a very big thing of, this is Peter and Susan's last time. They are done go- coming to Narnia. Mm-hmm. Susan and Edmund, or Lucy and Edmund will come back, mm-hmm. but not there is a time where your journey is done in this world. Yep. But now is not that time. Yeah, I, you gotta love a quote that can like just be applied to your real life. 
and take something away from the film. Um, I've gone the much more obvious route. It's memeable. I don't yeah, care. Yeah, yeah, I thought I thought about picking it. But... I'm bringing it. Do you want it? Do you know it? Do you want it? Can you perform it better than I would? Oh, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> don't cite the dark magic to me, which <laughs> I was there when it was written. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's one it's so yeah it has become a meme at this point but I still get the chills when I see it in the context of the film because it's not always so often you get um the big bad and your greater good square having some sort of square up in the middle of the film like not at the end of the film but like as a pre-meeting so and as we've been like hyping up the witch, usually in the film, you might not see her till the end, which is gonna like bring all the forces as we see. So to see them face off in the middle and for him to like scare off, I, I love it. So that, that quote I really like, and then the big roar, of course, and you're seeing the might and the power of Razlan, and oh wow, there's, this side actually has a chance against her. So I think this quote is amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, I I think again, this is a quote that works even better when you know the full lore of the series um yes but yeah like having the two of them come to a face-to-face -face confrontation in the middle of the film where it is pure like it is purely just them talking like it is it is a hostage exchange mm. <laughs> that's like literally what's happening is they yeah. are turning edmund over and her basically saying like you know the rules of like like there are fundamental rules to this universe mm -hmm. uh and he goes i know because uh i'm going to spoil there. the end of the magician's nephew i'm sorry <gasps> it's a book that's like 80 years old at this point or something um <laughs> but at the end of the magician's nephew like the, the world of narnia does not exist at the beginning of the magician's nephew and it is created by Aslan, basically as a land to hold the White Witch temporarily while they wait for, like, the prophesied being. So basically, the White Witch comes from a different place, um, which is very confusing and complicated. And then she manages to make her way into, like, the actual real world England. She comes wow. to our world. And so, like, the reason there is a lamppost in Narnia is because when yep. she's in the real world, the witch like rips a lamppost out of the ground and starts like smashing cars with it. And she is like wreaking havoc on earth. And the lamppost is the point from which the world of Narnia spawns. Aslan basically takes them into this blank universe and from the lamppost creates a world. Okay, that is and, the plot point that is hooking me right now. Like I'm never in yeah, this And it's like, it's, <laughs> nearly the end of the book but it's like yeah they create the universe and uh like there are things within this universe that will like hold her back for a while while they wait for uh the prophesied heroes uh i will also say again apologies for spoiling the main character the magician's nephew who like is responsible for the white witch accidentally coming to earth and all of this is professor kirk again knowing that when you see his interactions with lucy where all of them are like she thinks there's this magical land in the wardrobe he She's was in it too quickly like he knows well yeah because he and they're like 
it's it's another line that I could have pitched for my favorites was they're like, well, of course there's not one. That's impossible. He's like, well, what do they teach in schools these days? <laughs> yes. But it's like, yeah, he fully knows. And then again, that that mid credit scene is like, yeah, it is a man who knows that she's telling the truth, who has experienced the same things she has going like, this is real. And yeah, with that context, having as let's say, do not cite the Steve magic to yes. me, which I was there when it was written. Literally, he was. He was. He was there when the rules of this world were made because he's the one who made them. He's the one who, like, set up this whole place. And it's just just a brilliant callback to a movie that we never got to see made. One song. I have but one song. Karen, what are your thoughts on the score and soundtrack? Oh, this is this is one of my favorite scores of all time. I think it's absolutely beautiful i think it's absolutely heartbreaking harry gregson williams does a phenomenal job with the music in this movie just like like we said earlier the narnian lullaby is easily my favorite piece of music in this movie it's so hauntingly beautiful and then you have like the music for when aslan is sacrificed is just an absolutely beautiful but again like like beautiful but harrowing piece of music but then you have the music of like the battle and you have the music of the opening scene where you have the war and they are like these big booming sounds uh these score pieces that fully set and feel the tone of the thing the music when father christmas shows up is so delightful and it's just like this is your little break from the action these children get to meet santa uh, and it's very happy. Um, as for the soundtrack, because there are there are songs that are not score pieces for this movie. Uh, there is a song called Can't Take It In by Imogen Heap, which I really enjoy. Uh, there's a song called Wonderkind by Alanis Morissette, which was written for this movie, uh, which is really enjoyable. Uh, there is uh, Winter Light by Tim Finn, which I don't love, but I think it's decent. And then a song that is not in this movie but was written for this movie called Together Again by Evanescence, which was not included in the soundtrack for the film, but it has been confirmed afterwards that it was written for this, which a 2005 family film, fantasy film from the Disney company based on a series of Christian children's books, having an Evanescence song written for it is insanity to me. But it's uh, and the song is not that great. If I'm being completely honest, I did not particularly enjoy it. I re-listened to it the other day. But yeah, no, like I think the score and the music for this are fantastic. One of my favorite scores of all time. I love. I'm always a sucker for like a periodish piece of like anything in the 1940s. So when we get that Hollywood canteen, Andrew's sister's style songs, that, that always really speaks to me. So I like that when they're running around the house playing hide and seek and that's what's, that's the kind of music that's backing oh, it. Oh, the, the song that plays during the hide and seek sequence. Yes. We even forgot to mention that. Uh, it's so perfect. Cause I think you even see them like, like you see the needle drop on the, the record player. As yes. it starts, and it's like, just fun and ridiculous, and the way it fades out as she's going into Narnia, and then oh, she comes and that back, and you can shingle. still hear the song playing when she mm-hmm. returns. It's like wonderful. This is great. 
So that's a good touch. The Mr. Tumnus fire score is obviously beautiful. I don't have many big thoughts because I think it just does a really good job of setting the scene of a fantasy movie. You know, it really does help pull you into that because you need that music to match what is visually happening, obviously. And if this is big budget CGI things, you need that that music that is also pulling into the world because that's the hardest part of these big fantasy movies is making the world feel realised because sometimes that's what makes a successful one or not. Some of these big fantasy ones, like I remember The Golden Compass, not holding up as much because I couldn't feel drawn into that world at all. So I think the score does a really good job of um, assisting the film. This is your badness level. Cameron, how evil is the villain? Jadis the White Witch, give me your thoughts on her. Oh boy, um, pure evil, pure evil. So first of all, going out again outside the world of the film to the general context of Narnia as a whole, if you didn't know, the the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is very specifically an allegory for the story of Jesus. Jadis plays the role of one Satan. Uh, <laughs> so... She has some big shoes to fill. Uh, but no, like, I think she is she is the perfect amount of evil for this movie. Yeah, Because, like, she's not doing the most horribly, heinously evil things that you could possibly imagine someone doing to someone. Because at the end of the day, like, that would be fully out of place within this world and within this setting of a children's fantasy movie. But she does just enough to make her the most purely evil being in this universe. Like, she manipulates and borderline seduces this child into betraying his own family just for her own gain and to hold her own power. And then betrays this child who does exactly as she asked. She turns people to stone uh, for, like, her own wanton desires of just like wanting to yeah we see even a very small moment from her that i think shows how vindictive and evil she is is it's after they've stopped the fox and they're like getting ready to go from that point you see her just like reach out and hit a butterfly in midair with her staff and turn it to stone and it's one of those things where it's like that creature didn't do anything to her. It was just there and she was mad and with extreme precision turned it to stone and functionally killed it. And then obviously the big evil thing she does is she kills Aslan. She kills the greatest good in the universe. She tortures him, ties him up, degrades and humiliates him before doing so, shaves him, and then her final line uh, before she's going to kill him, like, she has the villainous, slow, drawn-out monologue. Where she this talks is what I was going to pick as my second best just, line. And then yes. just, with no hesitation in the middle of it, just raises her blade and stabs him out of nowhere oh no no she says you are giving me your life and saving no one no one yeah and like it's because like she thinks she has won at that point 
because she doesn't understand the magic that is present at the stone table. And then, like, yeah, she she should kill Edmund. They bring Edmund, like, like if it weren't for Lucy's magic potion, Edmund would die. She stabs him, is ready to kill him. She has a chariot pulled by polar bears, which is not necessarily <laughs> evil, but it's just cool. Um, pretty badass <laughs> like, and like that's the thing also is like she is a villain that I want her to lose but she's so captivating that like when things are going well for her you're like this is really interesting to watch this is really cool um, I was trying to think um, what makes Jadis the White Witch a more successful character than like maybe a modern counterpart in we've had like a lot of evil queens with julie roberts charlie's Theron from like the snow white series and it's not a parallel but it, it's close enough and i'm like why would why did i find those characters more frustrating but i really like jadis and it's just the effortless way that tilda swift is playing her whereas the other ones are so exaggerated so over the top very mustachey twirling Whereas Tilda Swinton, and maybe that's because like she's more like an ice queen. So, but she's playing it subtle. She's playing it effortlessly, but she's not playing it dull. So when she, you meet her in the sleigh and she's all frosty and things like that, you still at least see a lot of emotion and whatnot. But a lot of her delivery is so deadpan, but in the best way possible. Like she's she's not inflecting as much. She's not emoting as much. It's just kill them. Or whatever. Oh, it's just how she does does those little moments, as opposed to being so, ha, oh, kill these young kids, wow, that we usually see so much nowadays. And the other thing I really like is they tell her story and her change through the wardrobe. And in these big fantasy films, I love costume detail. So when we first meet her and it's the dead of winter and she's in all her big frosty regalia, she looks Massive regal. Massive gown with the long cloak. The big fur mantle and things like that. She does, she looks regal and in her element and she's winning at this point. But then when it's starting to thaw out and we see her face as land, it's earthy tones, it's neutrals and furs and whatnot. Well, yeah. the big thing is her hairstyle during that the final hair. battle is specifically referencing and reminiscing of a lion. Yes. She is boasting with her look in that battle. She's showing up and is just like, yes, you guys worshipped a lion. Worship this one now. Like I have shaved him. I have taken his hair. It's me now. It's and like I think what makes it really great as well is like in the novel, the white witch physically has very few defining descriptors yeah, it is like, like stunningly beautiful tall and like imposing are the three that i can confidently remember and it's like you have so much room to work with it and just the way swinton takes it and makes it her own one of my favorite performances villain performances in a movie because i think she just rolls with it she's having so much fun playing that role. Like you can tell she is loving what she is doing. It's why, cause like, I think the Netflix is making a Narnia series now. Uh, and I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to see them cast a different person. Just put her back in the role. 
but just, just a phenomenal performance. And then, yeah, she, like, even the people who are most loyal to her, like, she has Ginnabrick, and she's just whipping him and torturing him, and it's like, what are you doing? Practically perfect in every way. What my big question is, and what I need to know, is why was... This film was really quite. I think if I look at the how much uh, the box office was like, it well, was it quite was like seven hundred million dollars or something. So then, what makes this one successful and the others maybe not so much? So, Voyage of the Dawn Treader is very easy to say why it wasn't successful. Because Voyage of the Dawn Treader sucks. It's bad. <laughs> it's really not good. Um, the same you lose... the story, parts of it is not good. So I, I, I've i never been a huge fan of the book for Voyage of the Dawn Treader even. I think it's my second least favorite of the books. I think just they they throw in a MacGuffin in Voyage of the Dawn Treader that is kind of like not really that important in the book. Okay. Where they're like, there has to be a very specific purpose for these for this quest. And then like, it, they don't really need to be doing that. Like I said, you lose Peter and Susan uh, and you replace them with Eustace, who, to be fair, Eustace has one of my favorite introductions in any book of any character ever, uh, which is the introduction of the character is there once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub and he almost deserved it, (laughs) which is the perfect like and the character is like, as I said, uh, unlike Edmund in the original Narnia, Eustace is an annoying little shit. Like, he is just the worst. He is privileged. He spends the entire time being like, I want to leave. I hate being here. And it's just not a sustainable character to have in a Narnia book, especially when the book has to set him up as the character that will be leading you forwards post-Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And then, yeah, the movie... You lose Andrew Adamson as a director, and he gets replaced with Michael Apted. Uh, you don't even get Harry Gregson Williams coming back to do the score. Uh, it was no longer made by Disney anymore. Uh, it was they sold the property. I want to say it was a Fox movie, uh, like a 20th Century Fox film. Just like so much of it is mishandled. Prince Caspian, on the other hand, I also love Prince Caspian. I think Prince Caspian okay. is also a fantastic movie i know it didn't do it didn't do like as well at the box office which fair i i think it's really interesting again you get all four of them back and what makes it really interesting is like you are picking up in narnia over a thousand years after the end of the first book or mm-hmm. after the end of uh of the lion the witch in the wardrobe we we have left like, we still have kings and queens, but we are reaching, like, pre-industrialization in a way. You have characters who are building, like, trebuchets. One of the big plots of the movie is the villains are building a giant dam, basically, in an attempt to force the characters that the heroes who are downstream. It focuses a lot more on, like, the politics of war in a way, uh, which I think is really, really interesting. And then the way the climax of Prince Caspian occurs, things are going super well. Things are going completely even, completely fair for all of the characters. And then one of the villains makes an extremely dirty move. And it 
sets everything into chaos. And then also, I think another thing that makes, I don't, I wouldn't say it makes it better because I don't think Caspian is better, but I think what makes it really interesting is like Aslan is kind of not present for most of Prince Caspian. Lucy spends the whole movie being like, he's here and like she can see him, but no one else can. And she sees like these fleeting glimpses of him, but he's not really there. And then like, as this movie goes on, you start to sort of learn why. And you see that at the end, you get maybe the best supporting character from any of the movies uh, introduced in Reepicheep. Uh, who is a small mouse voiced by Eddie Izzard, who is the greatest sword fighter in the universe. Um, and then, yeah, like I think Ben Barnes is fantastic as Prince Caspian. Um, there is an incredible sequence, which might be my favorite scene from either of the movies, where they are essentially, they like are essentially doing a heist almost type thing, where they are like secretly breaking into the enemy's castle in order to like, open the gates and get their army in under the guise of night and invade without anyone figuring it out before it's too late. And as things go on, it goes wrong. And just the way that it all plays out is super, super interesting. Yeah. I think I'm sad it didn't do as well. It did like, cause I think if this movie does better then Disney holds onto the property and we maybe get another one from them and from Andrew Adamson, who like Andrew Adamson was on a hot streak of four movies because he made Shrek. He directed Shrek and Shrek 2 and then the first two Narnia movies. That's a good like, strike. What a career. Yeah, I'd love to see more of what he has to do with this franchise. But sadly, that will probably never happen. Oh, Karen, thank you so much for joining me. I've had an absolute pleasure talking about Nadia with you today. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. I I love Narnia. It's my second favorite Disney live action movie. So there's one more that you might have to bring me on to talk about at some point. But uh, <laughs> no, I will I will always take an opportunity to talk about this movie. One of my favorites. Yeah. Fantastic. And we'll see you next time. And when you come to the end... <laughs> Thank you for joining me on this episode of Doing Disney. Make sure you follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Doing Disney Podcast and Twitter at Doing Disney Pod. See you next time.